Good morning. It's nice to see all of you today. Might have some out-of-town visitors for something happening up in Miami Gardens. I don't know, but uh, if, 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 uh, if you're down here for that, you're probably not here. <laughs> but you never know. Could be. Could be. Might have to scoot out. Um, if you have not picked up a bulletin, please do so. There are a lot of really important things that are happening that we want to uh, draw your attention to. Um, Ronnie and Tanya, are you guys here today? Oh, yeah, wonderful. Have you been introduced yet? I'm thinking no. Okay, perfect. Uh, Tanya was baptized on Wednesday night, so please, if you would, stand up and just give your princess wave. <laughs> Tanya and Ronnie have been attending for about a year now, and uh, 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 Ronnie was baptized a few years back, and we're just happy uh, that they're now uh, united in this relationship and uh, that they're here today this morning. Um, there's an announcement about the Days for Girls ministry and project. It's going to be at Debbie Schwepp's house on February 6th. There's a, a, a picnic for uh, the preschool. Um, on Saturday, there'll be a reception for Mirna Ruiz. Many of you know Mirna. She's been around Sunset for a number of years. Her daughter, Idalmis, well, Mirna is moving up to Orlando. And so, uh, in fact, the moving truck went yesterday, and uh, she'll be back down this next weekend, and there'll be a reception in her honor on um, on Saturday. So please uh, uh, think about making plans to attend that. So there's a lot of other announcements that are really important that we encourage you to get a bulletin, and uh, you'll be able to uh, follow along. You know, one of the best parts about the Super Bowl is not necessarily what happens on the field, either between the two teams or during the halftime show. A lot of people, myself included, especially if I don't have a particular team in, in, in that I'm rooting for, a lot of people like to watch the Super Bowl just for the commercials. You know how typically you kind of uh, 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 breeze through the commercials? The Super Bowl is just the opposite. I breeze through the game and I slow down at the commercials. Um, because these guys are paying like what five five million dollars for thirty seconds or something. I don't. I haven't seen the statistics for this year in the past, and so they're putting a lot of money, and they think very highly of these thirty seconds, and so it's it's worth it. Some of them I look at, and they they paid they planned on spending five million for that. I could have done better than that. That's what I think, but uh, but but uh, I, I don't have any shows on TV, so there you go. Um, you know, Super Bowl commercials are, are enjoyable, but watching commercials our entire life can have a negative effect on our spiritual health. Uh, the average American watches TV about 30 hours a week. If you count, you know, what we do in the evenings and then um, the, the weekends, that's about 60, 65 days nonstop, 24-7 of TV watching in a year. 65 days, two months straight. 30 hours a week. Now, by the time you graduate from high school, kids, you will have watched 360,000 commercials, unless you have a DVR and you're fast-forwarding them, right? 360,000 commercials. By the time you get to, well, the age of some of you guys, like old, um, <laughs> I'll be there soon, 65, you will have watched, get this, Two million commercials. Two million. Now, most of them 
have been created by some very ingenious marketing experts, and they all have one thing in common. They're trying to create an anxiety that you're not all that you could be. You're not really happy unless you buy this item or you give this item to someone for Christmas or their birthday or Valentine's Day, which is just in two weeks. You're not really happy unless you have that new car or you go on this vacation or you go on this cruise. And really, the commercials are designed to create an anxiety that you really can't be happy. And that's not healthy. Because then what it does is it leads us to buy and buy and buy. But commercials aren't the only thing that promise us happiness. You guys remember reading the Declaration of Independence in school? Especially the first part of it, the preamble. You know, the, the we hold these truths self-evident part. Is that coming back to you? You know, some of you guys have studied it so far, maybe in, in uh, uh, government class or, or history class or something. Our forefathers wrote this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, like everybody should know, and they are to be tr held as truth, that all men, which they would understand people, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable just simply means that can never be removed from you. Every single person that walks this earth should have the right to life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Now think about that for a second. The people starting this country felt like every single person should have the right to be happy. And where do we get that? Where, where does that happiness come? How do we... Oops, I'm sorry. I was looking at the back there and... Uh, oh my goodness, where are we going? There we go. <laughs> I assume that what I was seeing is what you were seeing, and see, there you go. You can't always assume. Think about this for a second. What does it make, what does it take to make you happy? You can say it out loud. What makes you happy? Money? Okay, there we go. Thank you. Get that one right off the top. Anybody want to jump in with food? <laughs> All right, kids, what makes you happy? Money, okay, well... Okay, so, so besides money and toys, oh no, money and food, we have now toys, candy. What else makes you happy? Family makes you happy, good. Peace, okay. Okay, Randy, we've heard enough from you. Just uh, uh, <laughs> Randy's over here saying, more candy, more candy. What did you say? Donuts? Well, now we're getting closer to, uh, yeah, what... Uh, Anybody ever happy because their, their team wins? Like, um, anybody happy that, that their team won uh, um, the World Series? Like this team in Washington, uh, uh, like who was raised in Washington, who has been following the Washington Senators, and when they moved away, and then this team from Montreal moved in, and then they became uh, uh, the Washington National. Anybody happy when the Nationals won the World Series? One? Yeah, me? Okay. 
Two people. Good. Thank you. Why would that give, why would that give me happiness? That doesn't make sense, does it? I had nothing to do. I wouldn't even watch a game because they were so lousy on TV. And I would definitely not pay money to go to a game. But then when they win, it's like, my team. (laughs) It's amazing what makes us happy, right? Or what we think makes us happy. Over the past decade, they've done like social scientists and and all kinds of other people have done like over 4,000 scientific and academic papers studying happiness. They come down to three basic sources for happiness. The number one source, you'll be surprised, I was. Well, maybe you won't be surprised. I was surprised. Genes. That's the number one and the largest source of whether you're a happy person or not. How you respond to things is all in your chromosomes. So you're either born a relatively happy person or you're born a grumpy person. So I got it from my mom and I came by it naturally. So there you go. That means... I'm good. Genes, events in life tend to cause us happiness or remove our happiness. And then, to a much lesser degree, values. Now, some of you won't be surprised by this study in the British Medical Journal that stable, long-term marriages tend to lead to more happy, happy, healthy, happy and healthy lifestyles And so those that have been married to the same person for a longer amount of time tend to, at the end of their lives, experience greater levels of happiness. Bob Dylan, in 2015, was interviewed in the, I guess he's old enough now, AARP, American, the Association for Retired People, and they were asking about some of his new music, about his life. Um, you know, he's been around singing since, since the 60s. And they asked him if he had ever touched and held happiness. And his response was, well, we all do at certain points, but happiness is like water. It slips through your fingers. As long as there's suffering, you can only be so happy. I mean, how can a person be happy if he has misfortune? Well, I, I think all of the definitions and, um, and the prescriptions for happiness tend to agree with Dylan and agrees with our popular thinking. You really can't be happy if you're experiencing difficulty. So, so when we come to the text today, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we, we find Jesus saying exactly the opposite of what the social scientists of what the commercials, even what Bob Dylan says. Because Jesus is going to tell us that true happiness doesn't come from those sources. And so as we read this text, which is the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, I want you to think through three questions that came to my mind and that will kind of guide our thinking What's the best translation for this word blessed? Because the traditional translations say blessed are the poor. Is Jesus' teaching descriptive, describing what is, or is it prescriptive, suggesting this is how it should be? And then what do we do with this text? So let's read through this. Thanks, Mike. Let's read through this and see where we go. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. He's kind of like the king who sits on the throne. He's getting ready to make a proclamation and gathers all of his court around him. The disciples came and he began to teach them and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke says, blessed are the poor, and leaves it there. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn? We would think sad, horrific, tragic are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, which often we understand as weak, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus seems to be saying exactly the opposite of what we believe. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I don't like to be hungry and I don't like to thirst. But for righteousness, who are the people that generally hunger and thirst for righteousness? The ones who have been wronged. They want to see justice accomplished. And so they long for justice to take place. And if you're longing for it, then you will be filled. And there's a bit of a change here in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And these last two verses kind of follow up on, or the last three verses follow up on these themes Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted. I don't like to be persecuted. And this next verse is even more challenging. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when people insult you, persecute you, and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. I I, I don't like to be insulted. In any kind of circumstance or situation, I don't like people coming after me. I don't like people lying about me. Even if I'm doing something good, I it's just I don't like that. But but Jesus says that I'm blessed. You know, when I ask someone how you do and they say blessed, I said, Oh, tell me, oh, I just got a new car. I just got a new job, I got a promotion, I got straight A's, my team won the Super Bowl. I'm blessed. I've never, never had someone respond, I've got some guy bad-mouthing me on Facebook and trashing me. I'm blessed. (laughs) No, that's not how we respond. (laughs) Rejoice and be glad. I do that when the sky is sunny, not when it's cloudy and rainy. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So, so Jesus is taking on the very things that make up our pursuit of happiness and saying that true happiness is found somewhere else. Now, the best translation for the word blessed is a bit of a challenge. The Greek word is makarios, and really the word means fortunate or happy. What happens is in our culture, happy or happiness refers to something that's very superficial. comes and goes. I read a post of a, of a young lady uh, yesterday who put the red angry face, and she was complaining that 
It was rainy outside. She had asked for a sunny day, and she was angry, and she was frustrated with God because it was rainy. Rain, for some people, can ruin their happiness. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about something much more profound. And it's not really about feeling good, but it's about being good, but not just being good according to what the world might say, but being good in God's eyes, according to God's perspective. What makes you good to God? How do you live in a relationship with him? How do you demonstrate that relationship of blessedness? And that's what Jesus is addressing here. So whatever word you use, happy, fortunate, blessed, they all, if it's going to be true to scriptures, have to be reinterpreted in a way that makes sense with what Jesus is saying here. The presence of negative feelings and the absence of positive feelings does not mean that you're happy or not. That's not what determines true happiness. You can be going through the worst time in your life, the very things that Jesus is describing, and Jesus might say, you're blessed. And we say, Lord, I'm not feeling it. (laughs) And he would say, you're blessed, according to his definition. And so the Beatitudes and these texts give us God's perspective of what it means to be his people. Well, that leads us to wonder, is Jesus saying that it is what it is? Or is he saying this is how it should be? Descriptive or prescriptive? Is Jesus trying to just, as he looks out among the people and he sees some people crying, he knows that they're hungry, he knows that they've been suffering at the hands of the Romans and at the hands of the religious leaders, and they've been treated unjustly. So he looks at them and he says, it's not all bad. God is looking at you in a good way. He sees your situation and he wants to revision what you interpret to be a negative thing into a positive thing. That would be descriptive. What we tend to do is look at this and we turn these into commands. God says that you should be poor in spirit. God says that you should be humble. God says that you should hunger and thirst after righteousness. Verse 4 is particularly difficult. God says you should cry. And, 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 and when we turn these into commands, it, it seems like God is saying, you can only be a part of my kingdom if you do these things. And that's a bit challenging. That's a bit challenging. I, I think they started with, or Jesus started by declaring these blessings on people. And then there's going to be a transition that we'll talk about in just a minute. I, I'll confess to you guys that I don't cry much, and that's not a good thing, okay? That's not a badge of honor. I, I recognize that. It kind of reminds me of um, an episode on Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, Raymond's wife, Deborah, cried a lot, and so he said, what is it with you women and you're crying and stuff? 
And she said, well, sometimes it's just, it makes you feel good just to have a good cry. So one day when Raymond was, uh, when Deborah was at work, Ray puts on some sad music and sits down with a couple, with a box of, uh, of Kleenex. And then he starts making all these real, I looked for it, I couldn't find it, all these really weird faces trying to make himself cry. Well, he had put it on a radio station and he found a song that was really sad and, and then they played a happy song and so he got up and started dancing and stuff and so that moment passed. Um, so if I take his, if I take this as prescriptive, God commands me to cry, what do I do with that? I think God is describing the kinds of behaviors that make it easier for him to have a relationship with us. And everything he says is the opposite of what our world would tell us. He starts with people who are poor in spirit, who are broken, people who are crying, people who are the most humble or down and out that there are. And then he says, you know, you've got a friend. You're not alone. It's completely counterintuitive. During World War II, um, the Royal Air Force, the British Air Force, was trying to figure out how to better protect their airplanes as they were making raids over Germany. And so they contracted this statistician named Abraham Wald. And so he examined the planes that had returned and examined all the bullet holes in the planes and everything, and he said, okay, we need to put extra armor wherever you do not see a bullet hole. And I said, what? Say that again? He says, yeah. If you see an area where there is not a bullet hole, that's where you put armor. And they said, but Mr. Wald, that's the place where they didn't get shot. <laughs> he said, exactly. The planes that got shot in those places, they didn't make it back. These planes that were shot in these places prove that you can get shot in the wing and make it back. You can get shot in the, the tail rudder and you can make it back. The planes that didn't make, make it back got shot in some other place than these planes. So reinforce those areas. And that's what they did. And I don't know if that was the cause, but that was one of the factors in helping their Air Force survive and ultimately win. Sometimes the opposite has to take place in order for the truth to take place. We think that this is the worst possible scenario. The Beatitudes re redefine reality in a way that is just so contrary to what we think. I mean, who wants to be poor and sad and weak and mild? My parents didn't raise me to be like that. And good Christian parents don't raise their kids to be poor and sad and weak and mild. Those are never the overcomers. And so how can Jesus tell us that that's the way to get God's blessing? Well, I think what Jesus does is he starts with people who are in this circumstance. He starts with people who are broken. And what people in the first century would have thought, as well as the people in today's century, when I am broken, I don't think there's any hope. 
And so Jesus begins to revision their experience. When you think you have lost everything, you're right where God wants you because now he has an opportunity to work with you. If you are full, there's no room for God. But only when you are empty can God begin to pour himself into your life. And now, once you're empty, he can fill you with his perspective, his priorities, and his blessing. I would say that there's a few people in the world that are able to achieve that sense of desire for God without being broken. But I would say the majority of us are stubborn enough, are independent enough, that it takes something major to force us to our knees and to look for God. It might be an illness. It might be some tragic event. It might be an accident. It might be the death of a loved one. I mean, I've been fascinated to see the response to Kobe's death and others on the plane. Nobody that I know ever knew Kobe. None of these people were friends with Kobe. And yet his passing in such a tragic way has affected people very profoundly. It's just one more reminder that even a guy like Kobe, who had it all together, who might have been dad of the year, who might have been one of the wealthiest people that could fly, uh, that use a helicopter service so he didn't have to fight traffic in L.A., even he is not beyond the effects of what this earth can do. And that causes all of us to rethink our priorities. I found out this week that the worship leader at our daughter's church in, in Alta Mesa, uh, Texas, well, the church is Alta Mesa in Fort Worth, on Wednesday, he didn't show up for Bible class. He was supposed to work with the singers. Uh, he was the worship leader. Didn't show up. They started texting. They called. Uh, no answer, no response. They asked a police officer to go by to do a wellness check, and he had passed in his home. Just out of the blue. It's moments like that that remind us that we have no guarantees. And when we are broken, then God can begin to work in us and through us. Leon Morris has, I think, one of the better uh, approaches on how to read these scriptures. He says that God starts with us when we are broken because that's when we get his, that's when he gets our attention. That's when we begin to look for him. When everything is going great, I might say thank you to God, but I'm not really searching for him desperately. But when I'm poor in spirit, when I'm broken, when I feel this emptiness, when, when I'm mourning and I don't know what to do, when I feel like the world is against me, then I look for God. And it comes to a head when I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want things to be right because then Jesus says, you will be filled when you get to that point. And once you are filled, notice the turn. Now he says, and this part would be instructive for us, once you have been filled, once you were broken and now filled, now go and show mercy. Now worry about your heart and your behavior and be pure in heart. Be a peacemaker. 
so that you can be called children of God and stand up for what is right even if you get persecuted. And so there's this movement, but it all starts with us in a broken place. The pursuit of happiness that the world suggests is like a treadmill. We're hamsters on a wheel. Never ends, and we never get there. Jesus offers a way to feel and know true happiness. Let me read the Beatitudes from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal that you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete and fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. And not only that, count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And you know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. It's a matter of changing our perspective. It's a matter of changing how we understand the world. It's completely counterintuitive. But sometimes that's what wins wars, that's what wins battles, and that's what can help us win our battle. If we can help you, if we can pray with you, if we can stand beside you, if we can guide you to a deeper relationship with God, we would love to do so. We ask you to make your way to the front while we stand and sing. Would you be free from your burden?